Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with an AL Cy Young Award winner and World Series MVP, Frank Viola. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with an AL Cy Young Award winner, World Series MVP, and a Minnesota Twins Hall of Famer. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Viola. Frankie, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, my pleasure, Bruni. Nice talking to you. All right. This is what I remember. Before I knew Frank Viola, we... For those of you listening to the Boom Podcast today, Frankie and myself, uh, we lived in Windermere, uh, right outside Orlando, Florida, for years. Uh, the end of his career, the, kind of the, the beginning, middle of mine, played some golf together. But before I knew you, you know, before you were a friend of mine, you were my you 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 still stand out to this day in my mind. One of my earliest big league memories. I come up from the minor leagues, hair on fire, you know, like most kids got a little swagger. I go to Baltimore. I get my first, you know, my first big league game. We come to Boston and I'll never forget it. They said, Frank Viola's pitching today. And I, I was thinking, to be honest, I thought, good, a lefty, you know, everything will be coming into me. Uh, it'll be a relaxing day. And I knew Frank Viola. I knew you wanted to sign a young award. And I went out there and I remember after that game sitting in my locker going, okay, the guys in AAA don't throw change-ups like that. And it stands out to this day. It's like, okay, I knew I'm, I'm a little – I'm in a different place now. It was a, it was a cool memory of mine because I still remember it. Then the next day I had the rocket. Rocket hit me in the head. So I, I, had, a whole bu- I had a whole bunch of memories my first trip to Boston. I don't even know if you remember that, but, but I remember. I said, Frankie's throwing that change-up. But that change-up's not like that guy in, in Edmonton, Edmonton, Canada. Canada, right. it's different. Yeah. Well, Johnny Padres, Johnny Padres was my pitching coach when I was with the Twins. And early on in my career, I came off the big leagues, Bruni, and I was a fastball, slow curve, maybe an occasional slider guy. I'd never even thought about throwing a change up. And first couple of years in the big leagues, I got my lunch handed to me. You know, I fall behind the counter, having to throw a fastball in there, something hard, and it got hit. So one day, Johnny Padres said, okay, this offseason, after my first two-thirds of the year at my first big leagues, they sent me down to instructional league for two purposes and two purposes only. A, you're going to learn a changeup, and B, you're going to learn the slide step because you have the worst, worst pickoff move in the history of the game, and everybody's going to run on you. So for five weeks, all I did was slide step down there every outing, seven, eight innings. I mean, back then, we threw seven innings. Now, instructional league, you pitch an inning a week, and you're doing something you know powerful. But I learned how to do that. But the biggest thing I learned was ch- the, the changeup, you know, and the changeup makes all the different. And you just said it. You just backed up the reason why the changeup is so important. Everybody thinks it's a fastball. First priority for a hitter is fastball. Look for that fastball. But now if you're throwing a changeup and you could take 8 to 10 to 12, to even 14 miles an hour off that changeup, you don't have time to adjust in the batter's box. And that fastball coming in, that you think is a fastball is now a changeup. It is dropping at the plate. It doesn't give you a chance to really uh, feel comfortable. So I guess the biggest thing for me was that, and I love that you said what you said, Booney, because I had so many people tell me in my career, I went 0 for 4 against you, but it was the softest 0 for 4 because you didn't really scare me. 
but you just made the right pitch at the right time to keep me off balance and have somebody, you know, pull a, pull a ball to the shortstop or the third baseman got me out. It, it's amazing. And, and you hit on a good point. I want to talk pitching with you a little bit. Um, the, the, you give the illusion that it's a fastball. That's the reason a changeup works. And, and, and I laugh at people out there, you know, especially when it comes to a split finger, split finger is a different pitch than the changeup. Mm-hmm. But the whole idea behind the split finger is to give the appearance that it's a fastball. That's why people swing at it in the dirt. They don't swing at it in the dirt because they say, oh, this split finger is going to go in the dirt. And let me swing at it. No, I was fooled. That's right. why I swung at it. Same with the changeup. The illusion, it's coming out of a fastball, uh, same slot as you throw the fastball out of, and it is a fastball. So when you get those ugly swings and misses out there, it's not because, oh, how could he swing at that? You know, I laughed at people. How could you chase that slider? You know, you you, you mentioned instructional ball, and, and I remember going to instructional ball. They said, okay, we're not going to swing at any breaking balls today. It's oh, a yeah. Two, oh, yeah. It's that a was two, a big thing. Yep. It's a $2 fine. Well, it never made sense to me. Because I thought I never want to chase a breaking ball ever. The reason I chase a breaking ball is because I'm fooled. So it's not easy to say, well, I'm just not going to swing any break balls. Now, if you said we're not swinging at fastballs today, that's different. I could probably do that. But to say, okay, we're not swinging any breaking balls. And and it cracked me up because the coaches would walk around and say, hey, what are you doing swinging at that that slider? I said, oh, yeah, I wanted to get fined. That's why I swung at it. Don't don't you realize that's that's the whole thing in pitching and hitting and that battle that goes on between us. It's a cat and mouse game. I'm not swinging. I love when, you know, Johnny Smoltz sums it up. I played with him for one year. He sums it up pretty good. And he did it his whole career. And I had trouble. I just, he was one of those guys that I couldn't pick up the spin on his slider. And it seemed like every time I'd sit on his slider, it was a fastball in the outside corner. Well, what he would do is, and he talks about it all the time, is when he got an aggressive hitter, a guy that he knew would chase his slider, he would never throw that slider for a strike. He would Mm -hmm. throw it off his fastball, off that outside corner, and it's a swing and a miss pitch. So that's that's how the big-time pitchers pitch. They don't – they throw – they – they throw out of the same position to the same location, but the sliders are swinging a miss pitch. The fastball is to give me a strike pitch. And right. and it's, it goes back and forth, depending on who you're hit. You know, you're facing Tony Gwynn, a little bit different. You're facing a Johnny Olerud who doesn't swing at balls. It's a little bit of a different uh, mm-hmm. tactic you've got to take, but, but it's, it, it's funny to me when people say, well, of course, you know, when Trevor would throw his change up, we'll just, just wait for the fastball. Oh, oh, okay. Is that all I do? The reason I swing, the the reason I, you know, and Trevor, I think, was so dev- devastating with his changeup because at that time in baseball, it was very rare the righty on righty changeup. Right. So it was different for us. It's something that we don't see. And it's just, all- and even and Booney, even the closer throwing a changeup back then. The only two I remember are Hoffman. And Johnny Franco from the left side. How many other closers yeah. actually had a changeup? Johnny Franco was nasty. He he put it seemed like he just painted that outside corner on me. And his changeup was, I mean, really had some action on it. Right. As far right. as starters, uh, consistently through my career, man, Tommy Glavin, his changeup would just never get there. 
Mm-hmm. And he had that what I call a special changeup. You had one. I remember seeing it early in my career. But as I went on, you know, lefties usually was a was a rest day for me. Like, OK, I, I, I don't have to worry about that ball going away from me. And most left handed starters in the big leagues. Uh, it wasn't going to be that battle. It's not like I'm facing Pedro or Rocket right. or, right. you know, it's it's kind of I can get up on the plate a little bit up in you the want box. Established out in a way and then pitch off of that. Right. So, you feel, so you're not wor- worried too much of that ball middle in or inside half. Right. Very few people had the what I called that special pitch, that special changeup. There's not too a lot of lefties were good pitchers, good stuff. But to have that special changeup, there was only a handful of you guys that had it. And uh, it, it's just funny to me talking, hitting with guys and, and oh, the hitting coach. He'll remain unnamed. But he, he said to me, hey, Booney, here's the deal. OK, you know, he's going to throw you the split. So when it starts off as a strike, lay off it. <laughs> and I looked at this man and this man was had a hell of a career. and was a great hitter. And I'm thinking. You should know better than this. Of course, it's I'm not swinging at it because I think it's a split. Are you a moron? And that's what I went through some time to time with hitting coaches. And I just went, it, it boggles my mind anyway. And that's the guys. Those are the guys who played the game and knew the game. How about trying to put that in today's game where kids never played the game and now they have it on a piece of paper and that's and they're dictating what to do, how to do it. It's amazing. It really is. Pitching, I, I I always I love to talk, and when I have hitters that really, you know, there there were guys that I watched during my career that really thought through the at bat, would sit on pitches, uh, just a little more astute than the next guy, and and there were guys that on certain teams I knew the guys that that used to approach the game the way I did, especially the second half of my career. I was very calculated, you know, I'd have a whole program and then I come to the plate and I'd execute uh, whatever program I came up with and, and I didn't waver. You know, early on in my career, I was just kind of swinging, just trying to stay in the big leagues and and really didn't have a plan. But as I got older and a little time under my belt and and some some guys that were really important in my career, Edgar Martinez uh, was a guy that really got me to that next level of hitting and we talked the game and we talked the mental side and how to prepare. And I felt so important. Yeah, as I went on in my career, it was ultra important. I mean, it was I didn't waver and I had the confidence. You know, if I'm looking for a change up from Frank Viola and he throws paints me two fastballs on the outside corner. Well, I tip my cap because you you won the battle. That doesn't mean I abandoned my plan. And I felt like over 162 games, if I stayed with my plan, I was going to give myself the best chance to be successful. I want to talk about that on the pitch. You can do. I want to talk about on the pitching side, you're getting ready to prepare for a, for a game. And this is just random. It's a hypothetical, but uh, Texas Rangers are coming to town. What's Frankie Viola doing to prepare for that game? And did you watch tendencies of hitters? Did you watch body language? Did you watch to see, is he sitting on a certain pitch just by the way he takes another pitch? At times, at times. In eighty in eighty eight, when I won the Cy Young, I had the I had the blessing to have a young left handed pitcher with us by the name of Alan Anderson. He won the Cy Young Award. I mean, uh, when I won the Cy Young Award, he won the ERA title. He beat Teddy Hagera on the last day of the regular season to win the ERA title. He won like sixteen games that year. But we were comparable in certain ways. But the biggest blessing I got from him was I had another lefty I could look at. 
you know, my, my career changed, Brett, when um, Burt Blylevin came over in the trade in 86 from the Cleveland Indians. I had that veteran I could talk to, uh, baseball. I mean, he's, and as you know, Burt, he's the goofiest SOB in the world. He does stupid, crazy stuff. But when he was between those white lines, there was no more competitive pl- pitcher in the game than Burt Blylevin. So when I had questions of him, he was always, you know, he's still one of my dearest friends today because of who he is. But any questions I had, he answered. Uh, it might not be what I was looking for, but at least I listened to him. I heard him out. And then I had, a, I had to decipher what I wanted to take, what I didn't take, and go from there. So with Burt, it was great talking baseball, especially pitching. But then Allen came along. And I could watch. And, and you talk about tendencies of hitters. You just brought Texas Rangers up. The Texas Rangers of the mid-'80s, just in a nutshell, you come in, they have a free-swinging bunch of guys, and my eyes lit up. It's like, well, they're going to they're gonna give me absolutely no problem because my changeup's going to be a very effective pitch. The only guy in that lineup that ever gave me trouble, and I had pretty good numbers against Texas, if you would look, look at my record, was Julio Franco. Julio would wave that 38-pound bat, I mean, the, the, the damn biggest bat, waver it, waver it. But he, can, he had the hand-eye coordination, he had the, the, the hand speed, that he was able to make the adjustment on my changeup. And, you know, he, he didn't hit it with authority a lot of the time, but he was able to take it to right center field. He was able to pull it between the short and third stop hole. There wasn't a lot of other guys. The only other guy in that Texas team I remember that was bothersome to me was Ruben Sierra. And that was if I made a mistake with a certain pitch. If I pitched my game, I had no problem with Texas. So it's funny you mention that because I, even 40 years later, I could tell you what team. Toronto Blue Jays gave me all kinds of fits. You mentioned Olerud. There was uh, Lloyd Mosby. There was uh, 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 Ed Sprague. There was, you know, there was a bunch of guys that didn't strike out often. And those are the guys that gave me the most fits because my changeup, as you mentioned earlier, that was my strikeout pitch. And if you don't have a strikeout pitch, all of a sudden now you have to pitch a different way, get ahead in the count and make certain pitches at certain times that you're not used to doing. So they gave me fits because they put the ball in play. Anybody who put the ball in play was going to give me a, a hard time. A Mark McGuire, I salivated when Mark McGuire came up to the plate because he could not lay off my changeup. You know, guys like that, I had a blast pitching to. My favorite, com- my, my favorite confrontation in my whole career, Dave Winfield. Dave would either – I think he hit like 190 off me lifetime, but he hit like a dozen homers. So anytime I had a mistake, he hit one 500. But I also struck him out two-thirds of the time because if I got ahead in the count and I was able to show my changeup and use it with my fastball, I was able to keep him off guard. So, you know, it's always a great confrontation, and, and that's what made baseball great back then because every day was different. Every lineup was different. You just had to adjust on the fly, and that's what made it fun. You came up in 82. Much different game today. Meant much A whole different uh, I don't know if I'd be pitching. I, I don't know if I. Yeah, have a I, I want. I wanted to talk to you about that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a power game. It's all about yep. the power arm. Now, I think a lot of the the, the reason you're seeing this velocity and, and especially out of the bullpen is that's the way they're training. Starting probably at 16 years old. Back in the day, if you were in the bullpen, there wasn't a lot of finances going to the bullpen. They right. you'd, you'd put your money in your key players and your starting rotation, mm-hmm. maybe a closer. But the bullpen was kind of a, you know, a, a, a bunch of guys that were making, you know, OK money. But nowadays it's a specialty thing. There's bullpen guys where there's a, a lot of the 
the fiscal goes to. So I think it's become a more important role. It's the power game. I loved how you talk about subtraction. Uh, I always look for, you know, typical guy. If he's throwing 92, his slider's probably 84. His changeup's probably 82 if he's got a changeup. About 10 mile an hour differential. Right. Yep. Anytime you could get it farther than that, say 92 and your changeup 78, that's a problem for a hitter. We don't train for that. And and the guys that, that gave me trouble that I, later in my career is the guys that 3-1, 3-0, 2-0 count. You know, that's the time to, okay, well, this is a hitter's count. So I got a really rare back. As you know, big league hitters, velocity isn't a problem, especially in a 2-0 count. When you, when I know a four-seam fastball is coming, I don't care how hard you throw it. The guys that really got to that next level were the guys that threw 95. But in a 2-0 count, didn't crank it up to 97. They went to 89. That's right. how you get it off the barrel. They yep. throw you a BP fastball at 86 in a 2-0 count. And as a hitter, you go, well, what was that? The guys that really, oh, it's 2-0. I got to crank it up. Oh, I live. You say salivate. I salivated for those yep. types. The guys that I don't want to interrupt you, but I just make, make, make mention this real quick while you're just talking about this. There are two guys in the game of baseball over the last 40 years that I can say was were power pitchers when they were young. And learned and understood how they could become Hall of Famers by taking off. Uh, the one in my generation, in the beginning of your generation, was Greg Maddox. Uh-huh. Maddox came up from the with the Chicago Cubs throwing 95, 96. He wasn't getting anybody out. Then he realized he could throw 87, 88 and start mixing, matching, and adding and subtracting. All of a sudden, he's a Hall of Famer. In today's game, the one guy who does that better than anybody, and I know he's getting up there in age and stuff, is Zach Greinke. Greinke in high school, and I coach against him in high school, 97 effortless. He got to the big leagues. He was throwing 88, 89, 90, 91. Could, oh, occasionally show 97, but he didn't need it. It was in his back pocket if he needed it. That's pitching. Another guy that did it, Bartolo Colon. Oh, bingo. Yeah. 95% fa- – Brett, 95% fastballs, and the guy was a perennial winner. Yeah, he really Crazy. grew up from from the time he was a kid. When he was that typical guy, you know, he had, we used to call it he had that light 98. It was a light ball. It wasn't a heavy ball. But mm-hmm. when he started adding and subtracting and throwing that two-seamer to the outside corner, yep. he was a completely different pitcher. And, uh, awesome. you know, we know how his career figured out. You, you mentioned Maddox still to this day uh, when I'm asked. And, you know, and, and, and I, I think it's funny. When I ask a Frank Viola, ask a Brett Boone, who's the greatest you ever faced? Well, you know, we only, we've been on this earth for a certain amount of time. So it's tough to say, you know, uh, Matter of factly, who the greatest is of all times? You're you're going to argue from generation to generation. Sure. For my for my time, for, from ninety to to probably two thousand seven, out of everybody I faced, and and I faced a lot of great ones, uh, t- day in and day out, consistently, total body of work. You mentioned him already. Greg Maddox is probably the greatest pitcher I've ever seen. He was a technician. Uh, it just seemed like Greg on those days. Uh, where a normal person would, would call for a fastball low and away and would miss by a foot in the middle of the play. It seems like Greg's misses were inches, right. not feet. And he never, you know, it's like I look at every start I ever had against him. And I faced Greg a lot, especially in the 90s, you know, those Braves teams. Mm-hmm. He never had a bad game. I mean, a bad game was like he went six. We chased him after six and he gave up two. Yeah. That was a bad game for him back. Scary. Then. Yeah, it really is. I mean, he was he was he was pretty amazing. Um, pitching coach, 
you probably had a lot of pitching coaches like as hitters. We have a lot of hitting coaches. I take what I can. There were a, there were a couple guys that really could help me throughout my career. And, and it usually wasn't anything physical. It, it right. was something that could lodge something in my brain that made sense that I yep. could take to the cage and work. Uh, explain to the audience, pitching coach, the roles, the, the ones you had, did they help you? What was your relationship with a typical pitching coach? Majority of the pitching coaches I had, I was fortunate to say, did help me in some capacity or another. And, and you're spot on. If I had to explain, and, and I, I, work, I, you know, I, I, I haven't seen you in a long time, but I worked in the Mets organization from, for eight years. And I was there from 2011 through 2018. So I was able to say I worked with the DeGroms and the Syndergaards and the Matzes and the Fulmers and the Lugos and all these guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think that the, if you ask me, to explain a pitching coach, first and foremost, they're a bona fide babysitter. And I don't mean that as, as, a, as, as a personal attack against them because that's not what I'm saying. They have to know their personnel. They have to know that I'm different from so-and-so. I have to be treated differently. You could yell at me. I could take it. That other guy might not be able to take it. So you have to learn. And it's like having kids. Every kid, you got you to take and baby, you know, take care of certain ways. So I think first and foremost, and, and I hope it doesn't come out bad as saying a babysitter because I don't, but, but it's, it, it's really what you need, especially when you get to the big leagues, because the big leagues, you're fine-tuned already. You're not making major changes in your delivery or your mechanics or anything like that. It's mostly the mental part of the games that they're working on. So when I got there and Johnny Padres, that change-up changed me totally. That was the physical part, but the mental part, when I was it, here's a quick story. Hopefully I have time to tell you this. I'm in the kingdom. And after my first two years in the big leagues, I'm 11 and 25 going nowhere. The twins sucked at the time. So fortunately, they let me learn in the big leagues. Calvin Griffin, with all the negative stuff that you might have heard about him in the past and stuff, was a big, big fan of mine. And I find this out later on in my career. But he said, no matter how bad Frank pitches, he's going to figure it out. And he's going to become a big time major leaguer, which I really thank him for. But I'm at the Seattle Kingdom. I'm about ready to pitch. And the day I pitch, Booney, I don't want anybody talking to me. I'm mentally preparing in my locker. I'm ready to go out there. And I'm ready, no matter what happens result-wise. Well, all of a sudden, Johnny Padres comes up to me, sits next to me, and goes, dude, we have to talk. And it wasn't dude back then. It was, you know, son, we have to talk. So I said, what's going on? He goes, we're going to do something different today. Your catcher, who was Tim Laudner at the time, is going to call the pitches. You have no – you're not going to shake them off. You're going to have to – any pitch he puts down, you're throwing. He's not going to move from the middle of the plate. So now I, I'm not calling any game. He's sitting in the middle of the plate. And I'm like, holy Christ, what, what else could go wrong? I proceeded to go eight innings, gave up two solo homers to Richie Zisk. That probably went a thousand feet combined, but I left with a six to two lead. No walks, six strikeouts. I'm walking off the field at the end of the eighth inning and I looked at Johnny Padres and Johnny had a big punch, big old belly. And he had his legs crossed with his hands across his belly with this big smile on his face. He goes, son, what'd you just learn today? I said, I got some pretty good stuff, don't I, man? I just made them look silly. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, yeah, you do, but you have not ever been able to trust yourself. And once I understood where he's coming from, trust, you have to trust your stuff, your ability, what you have and work with it. So I guess in a nutshell, if anybody's listening who really likes pitching, strike one's the best pitch in the world. That's your best friend in the world because then you can do and set up a hitter any which way you want from that point on. And don't be afraid when you're behind the count to, to pound the zone 
because how many big league hitters during batting practice pop up a ground out? They get themselves out. We give the hitters too much respect. Hitters give us too much respect. That's what makes it fun. But my God, you have to, if you have faith in your ability, you can succeed. You mentioned the catcher. How important is the catcher? You know, growing up. Utmost. Growing up, okay, you know. You had got, an old man that was a pretty good catcher. I got Bob Boone. He's telling me how great he was. You know, he's winning some gold <laughs> gloves. And But I'll, to be honest, I'm pretty aware of, of this game, and I've studied it, and I love talking the game at a high level. Mm-hmm. The, the intricacies of it, I just, it's, I love it. But I've never paid much attention to a catcher. And in the early 2000s, Seattle Mariners, I had Dan Wilson as a catcher. Uh, he handled that staff. And I started to think about the importance of a great catcher, mm-hmm. the importance for his starting rotation, for a Frank Viola to be coming to the ballpark today thinking, man, I love my battery mate. And we're on the same page. The only thing I can kind of, as a non-pitcher, non-catcher my whole life, uh, kind of relate it to, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I only had one shortstop in my career that I got to work with for an extended period of time. That was Barry Larkin. Right. And it seemed like after year one into year two, into year three, we kind of were, it's like we were, it, I don't want to get goofy and weird on the show and say it was psychic, but we knew where each other were. We didn't have to really, it wasn't, we didn't have to talk about things. It just I could play my game, be as be as uh, take as much risk as I wanted to. I'd turn, I'd fire. Somehow I knew where Barry was and mm-hmm. vice versa. And it became such a trust thing that we could be our best. We could make unbelievable plays on a nightly basis because we trusted one another and, so and much. You did. And you did. Yeah. And we trusted each other so much. I can't explain it because, you know, you're coming up as a kid. And you're, it doesn't matter who my shortstop is. Oh, it, really, it, it really does. But I think even to a bigger degree, having that catcher that you are in sync with, man, how important that was. And when I was playing, I really didn't take that into to I, I didn't take that uh, really that serious. But now I'm on this side of the game, watching the game, analyzing the game. Man, mm-hmm. that's an important thing. How important was it for you? Utmost, utmost. You know, when, when you know the terminology I always say is kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. And the only way you can really keep it simple is by trusting the people that you're working with and dealing with on an everyday basis. You know, you were asked a question about the pitching coach earlier, you know, the babysitter, this, that, the other, but he's always there for you if you have a question for you. That was another part of it I wanted to tell you earlier. But as far as the catcher goes, when you know the catcher has your back at all times, uh, there's no there's no better feeling in the world. You know, my, my, my catch when I came up with the Minnesota Twins was Tim Laudner. I mentioned his name earlier. He wasn't the world's greatest defensive catcher. But he was a great defensive catcher and a great mind for me because we knew each other so well. I mean, if I had a 125-pitch night, if I shook him off two times, that's a lot of pitches to shake, for me to shake off because he knows me that well. You know, when I needed, when I needed to get, uh, you know, chewed out in the mound, he'd do a perfect time to go out there and chew me out in the mound. I never, ever had any problem with him showing me up. And, and it's not showing up, but just – putting me in place when I need to be put in place because, you know, I mean, we're throwing the truth out here a lot tonight. So when I was a young kid growing up, I was the biggest baby. You know, I I thought if a guy made an error behind me, he didn't want to play for me. If uh, the umpire didn't call a strike, I thought it was a strike. I'd, I'd stare at him or say something. I never thought it was my fault. 
And then once I realized, and I think Timmy was probably the one that, because he's, he knew me better than anybody at the time, he's probably the one that said, you know what? If you get your head out of your ass and just be you and stop concerning yourself about everything else other than just throwing the baseball, you're going to have some success. So, I, I, I mean, that's the confidence and the trust you have in the catcher beyond just calling balls and, you know, fastballs, curveballs, and that kind of stuff. You know, and, and I became a better team player as my career went on. And that's what I'm most proud of because, as you know, being a starting pitcher, it's the, it's the greatest life in the world. You only pitch once or play once every five days. you got four days to screw around in the bench, play golf, all that other stuff. But it's also the hardest part of the game because for four days out of the week, you're doing nothing. So when I can walk around and know my teammates have my back or they know I have their back, even when I'm only pitching once every five days, that was a lot of work I put into it. And I'm very proud of that. And Timmy, my catcher, had a lot to do with that to get me to that point in my career. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's it, it really is. It really is uh, that important. Uh, I grew up in New York. You went to St. John's. This really caught my eye here. 1979, you get drafted. You don't sign. 81, right. you're a second round pick. You sign. What the hell did you do from 79 to 81? <laughs> I, had two, I had two pretty good years. You got to realize, too, Booney, I, I don't know if you played with him, but uh, there, there was another freshman that came to St. John's with me at the same time. Uh, he had a pretty good major league career. His name is John Franco. So Johnny, 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 came, Johnny Johnny came to, we came to St. John's together our freshman year. Uh, we became one, two. Johnny was one. I was two. Uh, we got to one game away from getting to the College World Series. That was before Super Regionals and all that stuff. It was just a regional that you go through. Our sophomore year, two-thirds of the way through the year, Johnny hurt his shoulder. So he couldn't pitch at the end of the year. But we were fortunate still to be able to get to the College World Series. That was 1980. Uh, in pitching in, co- in the College World Series, I beat Arizona. And that was the year that Terry Francona was the player of the year. Arizona came out of the loser's bracket and uh, and uh, won the whole World Series after beating him the first game in the World Series. By doing as well as I did there, I got to go play summer ball in Alaska, which, as you know, is one of the best areas. for What team do you, what team did you play for? Kenai, Kenai Peninsula. Kenai, okay. I yep. played in that league. I was a goal panner. There you go. Oh, how 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 great was that summer? It, 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 what an experience! Exactly. Tinfoil tin on the windows. <laughs> a mid, midnight sun game. You had yeah. it all. That was a great summer. Anyway, so you know, here I go, and then at the end of that summer, instead of going, did you go to Wichita the year you were there? No, the only okay, other we, place we went, we went to Hawaii at the end of the year for kind of a round robin playoff, and then Washington State uh, was Bobo in Brady. was part of the last Alaska League. Yeah, yeah, oh, Bobo, was, Bobo, Bobo, yeah. Um, but I was supposed to go to Wichita with the team, and right before that, I was asked to play for U.S. All Star team going to Taiwan, Japan, and Korea. So you can't turn that down. That's a month trip. So I ended up going there. You know, quickly, my next year at St. John's, uh, in the regional, I played probably the greatest college game they've ever talked about over the last 40 years. I faced a guy by the name of Ron Darling who had a no-hitter through 11 innings. Uh, Roger Angel, the great baseball writer, wrote about it. So for 40 years, it was the greatest one nothing college baseball game, 12-inning game anybody's seen. So you put those two years plus together, Bernie, that, that got me to the second round in 81. You're only in the minor leagues for a minute. And uh, yeah, l- looking at 82, 83, you did. You had a rough run. You were uh, four and 10, seven and 15, 84. And I started, and, off, and I started off three and oh, my career. <laughs> did you? And, and yeah. you, you banged out another an, another win that 82 season. There you go. 
84, it picks up. You have a 3-2 earner. You, you go 18 and 12, and you go 18 and 4. Uh, and I'm getting us up to the World Series year. 16 and 13, 17 and 10 that World Series year with a 2-9 ERA. Uh, Tom Kelly had taken over. You came up, Billy Gardner was your manager, uh, but Kelly had taken over at that point. Uh, and I remember, because that was my senior year. You know, I got drafted. I ended up going to USC, but that's the height of of in my experience my life when i was really in tune uh with the game because i was you know i was getting ready uh, you know i was getting drafted i was going to be a college baseball player man espn sports center the whole thing and that's the year you guys you guys won the world series i i remember watching every inning of every of every game that year uh in the postseason take me through that year um you beat to the cardinals or i'm sorry you beat the Tigers to get to the Cardinals in the World Series. Right. Uh, take me through that '87 year. You had personally had a had a great year, but tell me about that team. I want to I want to hear about you know Blylevin was on that team. Steve Carlton. I don't think he was on that postseason roster, but he was part of the team there. Yep. Yep. Uh, well, we, Gaetti, you know Gagne, Brunanski, and of course we're going to talk about Herbeck and and one of my favorites of all time, and he passed away years ago, as everybody knows, Kirby Puckett. But tell me about that 87 year. Well, that was it. I mean, first of all, we come into spring training in 87 after a year that we lost 90-plus games, and you know we're feeling better about ourselves because we know we have some talent. But when you broke it down, we still didn't have any pitching. And the only blessing that we had that year was that the American League West was god-awful. It was really us. Oakland was rebuilding a little bit. Texas was rebuilding a little bit. So we knew that we had an opportunity if we could put the pieces together. And we made three major, major moves during spring training in 87 that really, I think, made the difference in our makeup and in our uh, thought process as to how good we could be. The first one we did, we got a left, left fielder, feisty leadoff hitter, Pain in the neck to, to play against, play with, just played the game so damn hard by the name of Dan Gladden. Gladden came over. He was the left fielder. He was that leadoff hitter, the fiery guy that we were looking for. Then we needed a utility player, somebody who can play once or twice a week, second, short, third. We had Ron Gardenhire. We had Ron Washington, both who became major league managers a few years later. But the guy who won that spot was a guy by the name of Al Newman, who ended up having a 12-year career as a utility infielder, just a perfect role player for what we were looking for at the Twins. And then the final answer to what we were looking for was uh, Ron Davis had been our closer for a couple of years, and Ron Davis had a couple of really nice years with the Yankees, but he was Goose Gossage's setup man. He was never a true closer, and he never really felt comfortable as a true closer. All of a sudden, Andy McFell makes this great trade, and he brings in Jeff Reardon, you know, one, he, he, one of the greatest uh, closures in the game. So now we're leaving spring training. We got three bona fide role players, star players to go along with the guys you mentioned. We had a great bench player and Randy Bush who could play right field, DH, pinch hit. We had everything needed for the 12 to 13 hitters. What we were lacking was starting pitching. It was Bert, myself, and really not much else. So uh, they brought in the Steve Caltons. They brought in the Joe Negros. They brought in the Mike Smithsons, the John Butchers, a bunch of guys who had had success in the big leagues, but were either at the end of their career or struggling a little bit at that time. And they, they helped enough to keep us in the pennant race, but it just wasn't, we weren't able to 
put any long win streaks together because we just didn't have that specifically four or five starter. There was a guy that stepped up around the All-Star break, a Venezuelan kid. Didn't have a long career, but his name was Les Straker, or is Les Straker. And if you look at his numbers, the second half of that year, he really filled a role that was very, very important to us because he gave us innings as the third starter. So uh, that was our biggest weakness, the starting pitching. Then the bullpen was great. We had a guy, Keith Atherton, who came over from Oakland. We had Juan Beringer, who shoot people down. Uh, we had Jeff Reardon. We had a good uh, bullpen if we got to the point where we were still in the lead late in games to get to Jeff Reardon. So 85 wins did it. That's all it took, Booney. 85 wins. We won, the, we won the American League West, and then we just peaked right then and there. I was able to go every fourth day. Burt was able to go every fourth day. So all of a sudden now, it's just a three-man rotation with the bullpen. The hitters were doing what they were doing. The defense was better than anybody in baseball. And we just beat Detroit to won 100 games that year, and they didn't really have a chance against us. We played that well against them. And then the Cardinals, you know, they, they were without a couple players. Jack Clark didn't play in that series. Uh, Terry Pendleton couldn't swing the bat right-handed in that series. But we had this advantage that a lot of people don't realize, and if they do realize it, they, they understand how great it was. We played at the Metrodome. Uh, you play at the Metrodome. You know how tough it is for a visiting player to come into the Metrodome and be successful in a short period. So we had a home field advantage like nobody else. And that was the first World Series, 87, that the home team won all seven games. So uh, we had a lot of thanks. The fans were absolutely fantastic. They made the biggest difference in the world with the home hankies and stuff. But, uh, you know, everything just fell into place. And the scary part about that whole thing, Bernie, is when I look back and I played, you know, 15 plus years in the big leagues, that was the only time I ever made the postseason. So at least at least we made it count, and that's the best thing. We got that World Series ring, and we did it as a team. So it was really cool. You mentioned the three-man rotation. Could you imagine, Frank, in, in 2023 saying, well, we're going to go with a three-man rotation? Yeah, you, you'll, go, you'll, you'll face six hitters and have to be taken out because they don't want you going through the lineup more than one time. <laughs> you like the Dome? I'll, I'll tell you a story. I loved hitting in the Metrodome. And yeah, a lot of people say that. You remember that that your famous announcer, no smoking in the metro. <laughs> so he yep. comes out. He comes out. This is the early two thousands, and, and I get to meet him. And they they tell me who he is. I said, "You're the guy, the no smoking guy." And he goes, "Booty, yes, I am." And I said, "Let me tell you this. F you, I'm smoking today." And he just <laughs> and, and this is one of my thrills. I, I I remember little things, but I remember before the game that day, he went through his whole spiel and he goes in at the very end. He goes and no smoking in the Metrodome. And he goes, that includes you, too, Boone. Did he really? He said it. And it was <laughs> awesome. It was awesome. Did, I love it. Did you like pitching there? You know what? It wasn't the greatest place to play baseball. You know, Minnesota is only nice certain parts of the year. And you really miss the outdoor part of it. But to answer your question, yeah, I had some great success there. I loved hitting there. I loved hitting there. Um, win the World Series. Uh, give me the White House story. I've seen pictures of you at the White House. Yeah, uh, I guess when we got to the Washington, um, TK made the decision that, you know, he had a, he had his boys. He had his Herbex and his Pucks and his uh, Bushes and Lodge and all those guys. But, you know, he said – he came up to me and he said, Frank, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to give this to, you know, to, to, to President Reagan. So I, when, when we got up there, uh, TK handed me the uh, Gipper jersey and I got to hand it to President Reagan. And that was really, really cool. And you were the MVP of that series. Um... I shouldn't have been. I mean, I, I guess winning one in seven helped a lot. But you talk about a total – everybody 
participate in that World Series. Everybody had a part of it. You know, I guess it's an honor saying 40 years later that I am a World Series MVP, but it wasn't me. It was everybody, Booney. And it was that was a great team. I, I want I want to touch real quick and then we'll move on. But I, I can't get by without talking. Give me a Kirby Puckett, how special of a player he was. I only played against him, you know, uh, uh I only got to play against him for a short time. I was a young player, and I remember Kirby coming over one time when, when we came to Minnesota. He was talking to uh, a couple teammates of mine, and I got a little bit of Kirby, and he, he was looking at me going, you're the young kid that swings real hard. And I, I started laughing. <laughs> but I remember just watching him hit batting practice, and it was loud, and he'd pound that ball through the middle middle of his diamond. But he's one of those guys, as a right-handed hitter, there were guys in, in my career that I'd stop and watch. You know, and and he was one of them. Paul Molitor was another guy I mm-hmm. really liked yep. to watch. Uh, I didn't really like watching left-handed hitters because they, they couldn't know what my world was like. Everything was breaking into them. It seemed like it was breaking away from me. Uh, but he was one of those guys. Right. To, uh, what was so special about Kirby Puckett? Just that smile. I mean, that smile made him different from everybody. He loved playing baseball. Uh, he didn't want to do anything else. He just wanted to play baseball. I, I, I got so many Kirby. I mean, he was my closest friend all the way through. I could tell you so many Kirby stories, but the thing that I, I, I'll tell you two quick stories about Kirby, and this is how special of a person he was. He, my Frankie, who's now 38, you know, my son, Frankie, believe it or not, he's 38 years old now. And to this day, there's nobody that he, no favorite, more favorite baseball player ever than Kirby pocket. So whenever he'd come in the clubhouse, he'd always look for Kirby, and Kirby would always have the time for him. And a week before Kirby died, during the offseason, he would call Frankie once every two weeks to say, hi, Frankie, you behaving yourself? How you doing? And then he'd hang up. Up until he passed away, he'd call him twice a month to see how he was doing. That's the classy guy that Kirby Puckett was. The other time is he, he just he could break a, he, he could break a clubhouse up so quickly – we had in 87, you're talking about the World Series and stuff. It was the first year Carl Pollard took over from the Griffith family. And the Griffith family, you know, as they found out later, it was a little bit of a bigot family. They didn't like black players so much, so on and so forth. So when Pollard took over, there were eight black players on the 40-man roster that weren't there previous. And Jim Wiesner, who was the clubhouse guy, lined them up in the row, four on one side, four on the other side in Tinkerfield and Orlando. And Kirby at this time is a veteran player. He's around the corner. And as I said, every day that we had a game in spring training, I'd find my three-year-old son, bring him in. He's got to say hello to Kirby. So this one day I bring him in, got him on my shoulders, and he makes me stop and, and at the black player's lockers. And he's looking and he's looking. All of a sudden he goes, hi, Kirby. Hi, Kirby. Hi, Kirby. Hi, Kirby. And Kirby is a locker over, seeing all this play out, and he starts laughing like no other He's on the floor, legs kicking, sprawling all over the place. And when he finally settled down, he goes, Frank, you got to get your son in the real world a little bit. But, you know, that a lot of people would have taken that and, and said, oh, my God, can you believe that? He made that into Frankie's greatest story ever to share. So, I mean, that's the type of player he was. Here's one, here's one that you might not even know, Booney. If Kirby struck out his first at bat, he was guaranteed 0 for 4. Bet you didn't know that. No, I didn't. Why? He, he, for some reason, he, he'd lose confidence in himself. It didn't happen very often, thank God. But if you struck out that first time, he was deflated, and he didn't know how to get out of it. 
didn't happen very often, but that was absolutely the case. Wow. Yeah. But just a great human being. And, you know, you, you, you hear stories later on in his life and stuff like that. Hopefully, hopefully people forgive him for some of the stuff that he did because it was nothing in real world sense that, but you just never know. But to answer your question, and I'm sorry I took so long, but one of the greatest human beings I've ever been around. It was a pleasure having him as my teammate and friend. 88, the Cy Young winner, 24 and 7 with a 2 6. Your first All Star game. Uh, you're coming off a World Series, coming off a great year in 80 and 87. 88's even better for you personally, not team wise. Uh, but kind of. I don't know. When you win an award like that, kind of changes things. You're, you're in a different level then. Do you feel that or you just felt, nope, this is a part of it. I'm in this groove at this part of my career. I mean, it's a compliment. It, it, it makes me know that all that hard work paid off and that, uh, you know, there was a lot more in the tank than I was giving myself credit for and I was able to get it out and, and uh, find that much more. But also, once again, in baseball, you don't win 24 games unless you have a team scoring six and a half runs on average for you that year while making the plays defensively for you that year. Uh, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that. It's pretty easy to pitch when you know you're going to get six runs a game from an offense that could score six runs a game and a defense that can make the plays. So, you know, a lot of that is, 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 was help, just like winning the World Series MVP. So great individual accomplishment. It's great now, 40 years later, when I could talk about it. But at the time, it was just... It was just, I think, part of my maturation. I finally realized, you know, this is the pitch I can be for a period of time. Hopefully, I can maintain that now. Move on to the Mets. Played for Davey Johnson. I played for Davey Johnson. You're an all-star in, in 1990 and 91. Go to Boston for three years and then 95. And, and I had forgotten this. I'm like, three starts and, with you guys. Me and Frankie were teammates for like a, yep. a, a half a second. Johnny <laughs> Smiley, John, you, you so damn early that year and John Smiley needed a little break and they worked out a deal that I, I had like three three starts in uh, AAA in Indianapolis and Davey was the manager at that time in 95 Wellesley was there uh, it was it, it, what you guys unbelievable talent but they, the, the Reds gave me an opportunity to throw three games I'm coming off of Tommy John surgery that was the biggest reason why they gave me the opportunity to pitch was to see if I can get back to the big league level like I had prior to so I got three starts with you guys. I got better each start. Uh, of course, they released me because you had to prepare for the playoffs and stuff, but it, it, it gave me the opportunity that offseason to say, okay, I got one more year left in me. Let's give it one more shot. And that's why I came back in 96 for a short period of time. At the end, we all come to the end. Uh, you know, mine, mine was, at the time, it was an easy decision. It ended up being a tough decision for me. How was it for you when kind of looking uh, back on your career that, man, it's it's kind of getting to the end. Did you know or was it abrupt for you or did you kind of know the writing was on the wall? I saw I saw writing on the wall. I, it wasn't the writing on the wall I wanted to see. See, I think, you know, when we talked about the conversation early on about me being a pitcher, not a throw, you know, I didn't throw hard. I was, a you know, I, I changed speeds, this, that, the other. I guess the easy answer is yeah, I could have played five or six more years, won another 50 games. Absolutely. But I didn't have a team that believed in me at that time. In Toronto, when I ended my career, I had a pitching coach, a last pitching coach. His name was Mel Queen. Uh, at the last meeting, it was the first time I've ever been cut. So this is 96. The, the Blue Jays won the world championship in 92, 93. They were really good for a couple more years. And in 96, they had a rebuild year. That's when they let David Cohn go, and they brought a couple of young players over. And they were just in total rebuild. So it was the wrong place at the wrong time. And I let the pitching coach tell me 
at my exit release that I had nothing left. You have no right putting on a big league uniform. Just be smart and quit the game. And the last person I talked to in the big league clubhouse was, remember Charlie O'Brien? I do. Catcher. Charlie O'Brien was one of the best defensive catchers. a part-time player, but one of the best defensive catchers ever, I, I think. So I walked up to him and I said, just, do, just answer me this question. Do I have anything left, Charlie? And he caught my one game. I threw seven innings against the Kansas City Royals, one six to one that year. A couple starts before they released me. And the rest of the time, I had to throw to a young catcher who didn't know me. I didn't know myself. So I really struggled. So I said, Charlie, just tell me the truth. Can I still pitch? And he looked at me and said, Frank, you can pitch another five, ten years. But to answer your question, I had – Frankie was at, at that point. He was 12 years old. My two girls were – Nine and eight. I've been married for 15 years. Never saw my wife during the season. It was like, I, I think God's telling me, you know what? It's time to be a father and a husband and start doing something else. So I walked away with my head feeling good. But after the, afterwards, you know, a few years later, I'm like, did I really quit when I should have? So I still have a little, a little could have gone on in my head. But you know what? The rest of my life's played out pretty darn well, Bruni, so I can't complain. Yeah, it's interesting because guys come to an end, and you know, if you're if you're not if you haven't lived that life, uh, it can be a tough uh, ending. I mean, I you know, I grew up in this. I mean, I'm in a big league clubhouse when I'm three years old with dad. Mm -hmm. That's yep. all I know. You know, I go into my career and I just figure I'm going to play baseball forever. Then in the end, I I retire, and I, I had those feeling those those thoughts that you just mentioned. I thought, am I done? You know, so I I ended up making a comeback in 2008. I go to camp with the Washington Nationals and I get really good shape and I prepare all offseason. I'm as prepared as I can be. I'm 37, 38. I got knee problems. You know, I can't play every day anymore. Uh, but I went back. I, I played the spring. I remember Jim Bowden was our general manager, I, he said, what do you think? I said, I'm not ready to start. And he goes, I want you to go down to Columbus for a couple of weeks and get a feeling where you're at. I went down there. Uh, you know, I wasn't the player that I'd been, but who, who, who of us are when we, right. you know, we get on in our years. And I remember going down there. I could still compete. I could still play four days a week. Um, but I, I, it wasn't close to, to my heyday. And I remember Jimmy saying, all right, you ready to, we're going to, bring it up to the big leagues. And I, and that was a bad team back then in 2008. I, I saw them in spring training. I said, these guys are going to lose a hundred games. <laughs> and I said, you know, when, when you're fully cocked and in, in, in the prime of your career and in when you're winning, this game is so hard even then to be a shell of the player I was and on a hundred lost team. I just thought at that stage in my life, I thought, you know, I don't really need this. I'd rather be at home. And it was, it was a good thing for me. Cause I came home and, and I had a little bit of closure, like, yeah, yep. I, I could have played, uh, you know, I tried to, Jimmy tried to get me with a, with a, a team in competition that year, tried to get me with the Cubs and, you know, or a Yankee type situation where I could be a three, four day a week player. It just mm -hmm. didn't, it, it wasn't meant to be, it didn't happen in that little two week window you have. So, uh, I went home and I, and I was okay with it. Cause the first time I retired, I wasn't okay. You know, I yeah. remember my dad looking at me saying, what are you doing? And I said, dad, I just don't have it anymore. And he, he told me, this is the one piece of advice Bob Boone gave me that I didn't listen to. Every other advice, it, it was very rare he'd give me advice, but I usually took it. And he was always right. And this time he's, I said to him, I said, dad, me and you weren't the same type of player. And, and 
I don't have it in my heart anymore. And I remember him telling me he wasn't angry or anything. He just said, Brett, all I know is this. My experience is you play till they rip the uniform off your back. And I said, well, me and you are different, dad. I'm not like that. And then, you know, a year later, contemplating a comeback, I'm thinking I should have just listened to my dad at the time. And, and then, it, you know, I was a, uh, I was a year or two older, so it was different, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. The ending of a career is they're, they're very interesting. And unless you lived it, you really don't know what it's truly like. So 100%, 100%. great, great career. Three, seven, uh, 176 wins. Uh, great career. Thank you. Post career, post career, Frankie, you were at the Brooklyn Cyclones, Savannah Sand Nats. You went to the, the Vegas 51s. That's a AAA affiliate. Uh, tell me about that. Did you enjoy it? Did you y- like working with that younger generation? Very much so. Especially the guys that the, the, that the Mets had at that time. Because they, they at that time, they were elite in drafting pitchers. And it was so much fun to be able to come to the ballpark and know you can make a difference to any of those kids that have been, you know, have changed baseball today. The only thing that got old is when they started telling myself and other guys, the older school players that we had to make adjustments. We had to start getting into the analytics. We couldn't be ourselves. We couldn't do this, that, the other got a little frustrating, but from a, from the point of view of, you know, at the time, 2011, I was 51 years old. So I coached when I was from 51 to 58, and I felt like a 25-year-old all over again coming to the ballpark every day because it was that much talent that I, that I had an opportunity to work with. And I think the number from rookie ball all the way up to AAA, I think the number is 24 guys I had an opportunity to work with those eight years that have gotten to the big leagues and have made a difference. So that's pretty cool to be able to say you touch that many lives. Maybe not, you know, maybe not a whole bunch, but enough that every once in a while you get that text, hey, thinking about you, thanks so much for all you did. I mean, that, that means more than anything, and as you know. And so it was a good run. Had a lot of fun doing that. With expansion coming up in the big leagues, you were in Vegas. Uh, you think Vegas, you think a big league team in Vegas is, is feasible? I mean, you see what the Raiders are doing. You see what the, uh, the hockey team is doing. The problem is that air, you're going to have – I mean, those balls fly out of there. I, I, I coached at Cashman Field before they got Aviator Stadium in place, Brett. And, oh, dear God, it was tough to be a pitcher coach just for the pack, part of it that you know you're going to pick your staff, no matter how good they are, it's going to give up seven, eight, nine, ten runs on a given night because it's just the air out there. So from that standpoint, it would be tough. But from a fan standpoint, they got some great fans out there. That, yeah, And it's such a uh, – uh, there's so many people coming and going because of the bet and the gambling and all that stuff. I, I, I could see it working, but it would be very difficult because it would set offensive records like you wouldn't believe. That's like, I think it would be worse than playing in Colorado. And you've said you've seen some nice numbers in Colorado over the years. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun play. I don't know what it. You know, I wasn't there. Uh, I was only there pre humidor, so I didn't. I, I don't know how much it's really affected that humidor effect. But uh, it you was had a guy. It was fun. Guy, It'll get you out of a slump, Frankie. But no way. question. We had a guy. <laughs> he's in, he just signed with. Uh, I think he just signed with San Diego for two years. His name Seth Lugo. He was a relief pitcher in the Mets organization, starting pitcher, relief pitcher in the Mets organization for a number of years. You know, at the end of the year, we write reports on each given individual pitcher and we give our numbers. You know, sixty pitcher, seventy fastball, this, that, the other. What do you think? Will, where will he end up? And he's coming off a year in Vegas where he was like five and twelve with a six ERA. And I wrote, and I, I'm, this is what I'm most proud of as a coach. I wrote, he's a no, he's a, he's a lock 
10-year major leaguer, once you get him the hell out of Las Vegas, you put him in spacious city field. He knows how to pitch. He's not afraid to pound his own. He gets ahead of hitters. He's got a good breaking ball, blah, blah, blah. And the, the kid's pitched six years now, just signed a two-year deal with San Diego. So it makes me feel like I know a little something about baseball, which you know, it always makes you feel good with your confidence. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, 2005, you get the call. Twins Hall of Fame, I know, is a special place for a lot of great years there. Uh, what'd that call mean for you? A lot. You know, I'll never get that call to Cooperstown, and, and rightfully so, and understandably so. But when you have a team that you played for, you gave your heart and soul to eight-plus years, and they call and say, you know what, you did enough to be, uh, you know, put in the Hall of Fame. Uh, that's the ultimate. It's, it's the coolest feeling in the world. Going to the stadium in, in August that year. And I also – I got inducted the same, the same day as Carl Polat, who was our owner – so it was even that much more special because my best two years were with when Carl took over the program. So, uh, you know, to be able to say you went in with the Carews and the Killer Brews and the Olivas and then the Pucks and the Herbecks and the Blylevens and the Kitty Cats. I, I, Minnesota's had some pretty good players over the years, and to be a part of that, it's really cool. Frank Biola. Thanks for coming on, man. This is a lot of fun catching up and, and uh, yeah, I haven't seen you. haven't seen you in a while. You, we both moved on from the Orlando area, but uh, I appreciate you coming on, Frankie. Um, great talking to you, Booney. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.